Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I live in the mountains with pine trees, pastures, fields. (laughs) No neighbors. Buffy's talking to me from her farm in Hawaii. No neighbors. Well, not any human ones. I had a horse who lived to be 46 years old, which is extremely old for a horse. I've had a few uh, resident cows from time to time. I have two kitty cats at the moment. <laughs> One's named Anderson Cooper and the other's named Panucci. <laughs> and, um, you know, cats and dogs and goats and pigs and horses and cows um, and chickens. I think that's it. Did I leave anybody out? We're on Zoom. We've had a bunch of calls like this. I'm in my DIY studio in Montreal, a.k.a. my closet, and Buffy's talking to me from her home studio. If you can maybe give us a bit of a a studio tour, because, you know, we're working in audio and everybody can't see the space that we're in. Well, it's a basement studio. Uh, The walls are carpeted. I've got a rolling keyboard and a Macintosh with two big display screens. Can you tell me about those guitars? I see that fabulous green guitar behind you. (laughs) Oh, isn't that nice? That's a baritone guitar. Um, There's the original Roland synth guitar. I'm going to. She picks up this off white, slim, sort of rectangular shaped guitar. So, this is the first synth guitar, and this is the one that I took on the road (laughs) in the 70s. I brought it to Europe. And when people saw it in San Francisco, I mean, There were some record business boys there who they did not approve at all. I mean, you were not supposed to use electronic music. There was a lot of resentment of new technology when the old boys didn't know how to use it. And some of the young girls did. (laughs) (laughs) And when you're working in your studio, how do you feel when you're in there? Usually I feel like, more coffee! It depends. I don't. It's like, I mean, how do you feel when you're walking down the street? It's different every day, you know? I don't know. It's always experimental for me. I never know what I'm doing when I walk into this studio. And it's here, in 1989, in Hawaii, that Buffy is on the other side of something. On the other side of an abusive marriage, of the L.A. scene. She's free. And she becomes herself again. I just wanted to get out of L.A., the scene in L.A. It was kind of the worst of showbiz, in my opinion. She thinks about letting things lie, about quitting show business altogether. Some people are trying to find out how to get into show business. I was kind of trying to find, figure out how to get out. <laughs> but show business wasn't going to let her go that easily. A record company calls her up and asks her if she might want to record again. And pretty soon she sets to work on her first album in over 16 years. And she's doing it her way. This album will be something totally different. Not just for her, but for the world. I'm Phelan Johnson, and this is Buffy. 
I had all these songs just hanging around. I wasn't doing anything with them. But I wanted to stay home and I wanted the music to be the way I wanted it to be. And the only way I knew how to do that was to have it start here in Hawaii and end here. The record label producing Buffy's new album is based in the UK, in London. But Buffy wants to record it in her home studio. So she comes up with a plan. She's always been into experimenting, into messing around with new technologies, with Mac computers when they first came out, synthesizers in their earliest days. I was into starting out with the sound of my own voice and having it turn into a coyote and then turn into a cello. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I like to do. <laughs> so it used to be it used to be hard to even get anybody to say, yeah, yeah, we'd like to hear that. <laughs> You know, I sit around and make music the way little children might play with uh, crayons and paper and numbers and blocks. <laughs> and I just start fooling around with something. And so she has this idea to try making an album using technology that not a lot of people knew about then. The Internet. We sent all my MIDI files, all the musical files, uh, over the phone lines. Sending files like this, it's pretty easy to take for granted now. But back then, in the late 80s, I just imagined that old internet sound. Was it loud? <laughs> Squawk, squeak, bleep. Oh, yeah, it took forever and it didn't always work. It would take hours and hours and hours, sometimes overnight, to send files. This was before the days of MP3s. So those files didn't technically contain any audio, more like digital instructions for things like tempo and pitch. So Buffy would play a keyboard riff into her computer and send that file to her producer in London, who has the exact same setup in his studio. So all he'd have to do is download that file, dial it up on his keyboard, and almost like magic, Buffy's riff would appear. Eventually, I flew to London to finish the record. We put on final vocals, we added things, we subtracted things, and it became the first album ever to be delivered via the internet. And it became Coincidence and Likely Stories, and I, it's one of my favorite albums. It's one of my favorites, too. The album was released in 1992, and it has all these really amazing synth sounds. The record label may have been game to try making an album over the internet, but they pushed back on some of the songs. Songs like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee that the record company didn't want to release. Starwalker, the record company didn't get it. They didn't want to release it. So these two songs, how do I put this? They're very indigenous. One zooms in on indigenous history and struggles for our rights, and the other brings in traditional powwow music. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't want that. They basically wanted vanilla songs, you know, same old chords. Indian legislations on the desk Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is a song that Buffy wrote quietly, secretly, in a journal she kept tucked away from her ex-husband, Jack. It would take 14 years for it to come to light. So when the record company didn't want it on the album, Buffy fought for it. It's a song about indigenous resistance, how for the last 500 years, Indigenous people have been pushing back against a history that keeps repeating. She sings about corporate greed, corrupt politicians, and about loss. And she frames it all in Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Bury my heart at 
1890, Wounded Knee was the site of the massacre of hundreds of Lakota people, most of them women and children. Almost a hundred years later, in 1973, the same place saw more bloodshed. A group of Oglala Lakota people and members of the American Indian Movement occupied the site. They believed the tribal chief was corrupt, and they wanted him removed. They were also demanding that the U.S. government honor the treaties. The standoff fired up Indigenous country, a lot like Alcatraz a few years earlier. And by the end of the 71-day occupation, hundreds were arrested, a federal marshal was shot and left paralyzed, and two Indigenous people were killed. You know, just the words, I don't even like to recite the words because they hurt so much. I can sing them, but they hurt so much. It's such a complex issue. So it took me a very long time to come up with something. I mean, I wasn't going for a Buffy hit. <laughs> you know, I've never been that kind of artist. <laughs> but I was trying to tell the story in a way that would make sense to the people who I thought would or should hear the story. So I was trying to be like a journalist in, in that case. The song covers hard subject matter, but there's also something so empowering about it. It feels optimistic, like a call to action, to stand up, to hold our ground. For me, it's kind of like an unofficial Indigenous anthem, and it almost didn't make it onto her album. The other song she had to fight for was Starwalker. Buffy dubbed it Pow Wow Rock. And it's the first song, like, ever, that mixes the two styles. She'd released it once before, in the 70s, but it didn't get much attention. So re-recording it, putting it out there again, was a bit of a gamble. Today, it's one of her most iconic songs. It's about the past, the present, and the future for Indigenous people, about looking back to remember how to move forward. I believed that if the record-buying public ever heard our music, then it would kind of be like the first time that white people heard the blues. People would say, holy, that is cool, yes. And I, I kind of thought that powwow music um, could be enjoyed by a much wider public and that it could be still controlled in the hands of the indigenous creators of the songs. Over the years, every now and then, I've had to step in to make sure that that dream was, at least in my own heart, coming true. Using powwow music like this, it sets in motion a whole new genre, and it's influenced so many indigenous artists. Today you can hear Starwalker's legacy in the songs of musicians like Jeremy Dutcher, Tanya Tagak, The Hallucination, a.k.a. A Tribe Called Red, and The Snotty Nose Res Kids. I don't even want to think about where the indigenous music scene would be without songs like Starwalker and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. When I hear traditional drums with hip-hop, throat singing with a synth, even lyrics in an indigenous language, 
It fills my heart with pride. I feel like I stand a little taller. I feel thankful. It's kind of magical, really. Quebec Police Force SWAT team moved in at dawn, trying to enforce the court order despite the provincial government's stated sympathy for the Indians of Oka. And if ever a police operation was to go tragically wrong, it was this one. Police used gas, then bullets, but they weren't prepared for what met them. Dozens of heavily armed Mohawk men determined to hold what they say is their sacred ground. There were women and children behind the barricades when the attack started, and that only added to the Mohawk rage. It's a hot summer morning in the middle of July in 1990. Shots ring out in the Ginyakahaga community of Gunasatage, about an hour outside of Montreal. What would become known as the Oka Crisis had begun. The standoff between the Mohawk Nation, the Canadian Army, and the police would last 78 days. The conflict was over the proposed expansion of a golf course and condos onto Ginyakahaga land a sacred space and burial ground called the Pines. I was only eight years old at the time, but I remember it so clearly. I watched my mom chain smoke, players' lights as she watched the news. I tried to put the pieces together of what was going on. Even as a kid, I knew something had changed, that things wouldn't be the same after Oka. From that moment on, we stopped asking for permission and just started demanding what was ours. And this feeling of sovereignty, of empowerment, spilt over into the music scene. I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah, I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlists can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Oka started something, stirred something. Well, people were starting to wake up a little bit, you know, and uh, we were becoming more and more vocal. That whole state of reclamation, you know, reclaiming our land, our songs, our stories. This is Elaine Bomberry. She's Anishinaabe and Cayuga from Six Nations, Grand River Territory. She's been in the Indigenous music scene for over three decades as a producer, promoter and agent. You were seeing it in all aspects, you know, of our lives politically. And then the artists, oh my God, the artists expressing what we were had gone through, you know, through their art, through the paintings, through the stories, through poems and music. Like we were reclaiming all of that. In 1993, when the dust from Oka was still settling, Elaine was a juror for the Juno Music Awards, also known as the Canadian version of the Grammys. And she noticed that one of the categories looked a bit like a mishmash. 
it was then called, I think, global or world beat category. And it had all these genres all mixed up, soca and reggae and everything. And it said native Canadian and it was typed like this, it went off the page. Like it didn't even go in the straight line. It was like a haphazard. It was the last thought to add, oh yeah, native Canadian. So Elaine was at this one Juno meeting. They were talking about the criteria for all the different categories. And then I just told them I felt frustrated. I said, our music doesn't fit here, doesn't fit there, doesn't fit anywhere. And the person sitting next to her leaned over and told her that she should start an Indigenous music category. And I just laughed, right? I said, oh yeah, right, start a category at the Junos. Once she stopped laughing, the wheels started to turn and Elaine set to work. She enlisted the help of Ojibwe musician Curtis Johnny Shingus, who has since passed away, and they started honing a pitch. They were just days away from presenting their idea to the Juno board when the phone rang. Is this Elaine Bomber? I said, yes. And she was, this is Buffy St. Marie. I'm going, yeah, right. Who is this? <laughs> and then she told me, she goes, I heard you're working on this presentation, and I'm going to be in town and wondering if you could use some help. And I went, are you kidding me? Of course. I've always believed that if our music was heard by a wider audience, it'd just be a better world. It'd be better for the people making the music, and the people listening to the music sure would love it too. So I just saw it as a no-brainer. In a lot of ways, Buffy had been the only Indigenous musician, the only Indigenous person in the room for a long time. People say, what's that like? And it's no fun at all. It's not bad being first, but to be only for all these years has been... Well, just kind of lonesome when you know all the talent that's out there. So Buffy joined forces with Elaine and Shingus. I fangirled, first of all, <laughs> when we sat down. I said, please, Buffy, can you sign these before we get into any of this discussion? I just And I said, I'm such a fan, and my mom introduced me to your music, and blah, blah, blah. And got that out of the way. It's like, okay, now let's get down to business. And she goes, okay, let's talk strategy. And I said, Buffy, you're the first person to walk into that boardroom. Me and Goose will be behind you. <laughs> That's the, all the strategy we need, I think. <laughs> and the strategy worked. With Buffy's help, they convinced the Junos to create a new category for Indigenous music. And in 1994, on a stage in downtown Toronto, history was made. Now it's my great pleasure to present the first ever Juno for the best Music of Aboriginal Canada recording. Longtime guitarist for the band, Robbie Robertson from Six Nations, was there to announce the winner. And the Juno goes to Wapistan, Lawrence Martin. Buffy's in the audience that night. She beams as Cree musician Wapistan accepts his award. First in Cree, then in English. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to accept this on behalf of my people here in Canada, because that's what my music is about, to help the situation, to also be able to get the music across and educate the public. And in this moment, the Indigenous music landscape shifts. This Juno category creates a domino effect. It shed light on Indigenous music, not only in Canada, but in states. They went, oh, we should have awards too, right? So. The Native American Music Awards emerged, the Canadian Aboriginal Music Awards, uh, Indian Summer Music Awards, and then the Grammys had a Native American category. 
And pretty soon, Australia launches the National Indigenous Music Awards, and the Maori Music Awards follow shortly after. Yeah, it kind of set the wheels in motion for our artists and for our musicians to get out there. It's not about creating music for awards by any means, but it just, it's a nice benchmark. It's something nice to have to, you know, if you want to do that kind of thing, oh, I want to win a Grammy or I want to win a Juno. It's not out of their reach anymore. As the 90s march on, Buffy shows no signs of slowing down. She dives into Indigenous education and launches the Cradleboard Teaching Project, a program that teaches core subjects through an Indigenous lens, which is really what she'd been doing for decades, educating through her music, her activism. She starts touring again, recording, and the music industry takes notice. And now the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm very pleased to be here tonight to present the Indigenous Music of the Year Award to Buffy St. Marie. In 2018, Buffy accepts a Juno, the fifth of her career, for her album Medicine Songs. Oh, thank you everybody, Kichimigwech. Thank you so very much. You know, this is the 25th anniversary of this category. And I really want to acknowledge with my whole heart, Curtis Johnny Shingus, and Elaine Bombery, who really are responsible for all of these coming our way. So Elaine, this is for you, with many thanks from all the indigenous artists in Canada. Kitsimigwech, everybody, thank you. And it's because of Elaine, Shingus, and Buffy, because of what they created, that I find myself walking the streets of Toronto on a hot, sticky day. We're walking towards the venue now. I can see the CN Tower sort of in the distance. This is um, my first Juno event. And uh, yeah, a little bit nervous, but really excited to be around artists and musicians. Is this where we go or do we go in the, oh, I, can, I think we go this way. I'm at Dynalone Records. It's an independent record label. The walls inside are lined with records and band merch, but I'm not here to see a show. Check one, two. I'm here for sound check. It's the week of the Juno Awards, and there's a bunch of events taking place around the city. Tonight is the Indigenous Artist Showcase, and I'm the host. Sego, 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 everyone, and welcome. This is the Indigenous Artist Showcase for the Junos. I'm looking out at this crowd at Indigenous musicians from across the country. There's so much talent in this room and so much range, folk, indie, roots, rock. And this year is the first time that the Junos are awarding two categories for Indigenous music, contemporary and traditional. We are growing. We are being seen just a little bit more. That was so amazing. Like, it literally blew my earrings off. One of my earrings came off in the middle of that. <laughs> One more time for Burnstick, everyone. It's here, surrounded by Indigenous artists, that I can't not think of Buffy. I feel like we're all standing in the house that she built. I think about her holding this space for us for so long, keeping audiences listening, reminding them that Indigenous people exist. I don't know if I will ever be able to fully grasp Buffy's influence. It feels too big, too vast. 
It feels like there are so many of us in the room now. It's not just Buffy anymore. Over the last year, I've spoken with so many Indigenous people, musicians, artists, thinkers, and have heard echo upon echo of how much Buffy means to all of us. She is such the launching point for so much of what we know as Indigenous art and performance now. She's the first person who kicked in the door. She had to break through the door, you know? She had to insist that our musical styles have pedigree. Our musical styles have a rich tradition that goes back really far and is just as concerned with excellence and with beauty as a Western European tradition. She has shown younger generations of Indigenous people that it is possible to be unapologetically one of the greatest artists, singer-songwriters of our time. She took this colonial system that we're all existing in and sort of turned it on everything. She's given strength to a lot of people by writing and expressing what she did. Our greatest matriarch in the contemporary music world as an advocate is Buffy. The humanity, the heart, the humbleness that is Buffy. Buffy St. Marie injected me with the power to fight for my voice, my identity, and my visibility. It sets a fire in you. If this person can do it and can make it, then maybe I could do the same. I saw a Native woman who wasn't afraid to embrace emotion, who wasn't afraid to speak her mind and showcase a central factor in who we are, which is that love we carry as Indigenous peoples for the next generation. The sacrifices that she made and what she gave back to people and gave back to the movement is immeasurable. How lucky are we? How lucky are we that we have had a guiding light, an artist that's always been there in our consciousness? Now we can hold that door open for a lot more artists. And you see it all the time. You see everyone's coming in and our stories are coming out, the languages are coming out, dances are coming forward, it's all happening. It's just a beautiful continuation of that. So, Chimigwitch, uh, Chimigwitch, 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 Buffy St. Marie. When I embarked on this journey of diving into Buffy's story, I was thinking a lot about this one line from her song, My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying. Now that your big eyes are finally opened. Do you think their big eyes are finally open? That the wider <laughs> world is finally seeing us and maybe understanding us? I wrote the song in 1966. How's that for optimism? I thought their big eyes were open then. <laughs> so every now and then, the native profile becomes bigger in the public. So sometimes they'll support us and sometimes they won't. It's tough. You know, we are in this position to correct those impressions and to help others to perceive us accurately our past, our present, and our potential for futures. And as Indigenous people, we always have to remember 
We are a tiny minority. We're a very tiny minority in the world, but very special. And when we remember that, sometimes it takes away some of the sting of being not seen. Hopefully, a lot of us are seriously, deliberately working to broaden our visibility and our reach beyond our own community, because we do have so much to share. That is the power we hold. We can sing our songs, share our stories, our histories, and people just might listen. And their big eyes may close again at any moment, but that shouldn't stop us, shouldn't stop me from trying. In her 81 years, Buffy never has. You know what? In spite of everything negative that has ever happened to me, I always had the same music that I had as a three-year-old. Nobody can take that away from you. I mean, when I was a kid, I was told I couldn't be a musician. How can somebody say that to a musician? <laughs> I was a musician. So I learned very young that sometimes the world is wrong and sometimes the world makes mistakes. I just think the world is ripening moment by moment and so is each and every person and blade of grass. We can always get better. We ourselves as indigenous artists and music makers we're ripening, so are our audiences. So don't give up, just have some fun with it. Just love it, I mean, you know, it could all end tomorrow. So, you know, sing the heck out of it right now. <laughs> We are grateful to have been able to include in this episode the voices of the following Indigenous musicians, writers, filmmakers, artists, and thinkers. Jeremy Dutcher, Bear Witness, Jennifer Kreisberg, Adrian Sutherland, Tom Wilson, Jesse Winty, Alan Bobswin, Susan Glucart, Christy Belcourt, and Kent Blancet. Thank you. And the biggest thank you, and nyawe, to Buffy. Buffy was written and produced by me, Phelan Johnson, with our showrunner, Zoe Tennant, and our producer, Eunice Kim. Additional producing from Leah Simone Bowen. Yvette Nolan is our story consultant. Editing and sound design by Mira Burtwin-Tonic and Nigel Irwin. Additional story editing by Mira Burtwin-Tonic. Our theme music is by Nigel Irwin. Roshni Nair is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is our senior producer. And Araf Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Special thanks to Jeff Turner, Cecil Fernandez, Jason Paris, Austin Pomeroy, Kate Zeman, Keith Hart, Wendy Gillis, and Chris Burkett. And to Andrea Warner and Blair Stonechild for their biographies of Buffy. Additional audio in this episode from Buffy songs My Country Tis of Thy People You're Dying, Fallen Angels, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and Starwalker. If you liked the show, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast app. These go a long way in helping new listeners discover our show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.